Hey, good morning. Welcome to Edinburgh Elementary. How are you doing this morning? I'm glad to be here with you. Hopefully, you are glad to be here too. Uh, if we haven't met, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, my name is Phil, and I am the lead pastor of Clarity Church. And last week, we launched into this new series that we're entitling Wrestling with Love because it's very easy, as we all know, to love the people that are easy to love, right? We are very prone to love people who look like us, dress like us, act like us, vote like us, and believe like me, and, 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 and are wired maybe with the same kind of personality as me. But the problem is that nobody is quite like me. And if I know you, and if you know you, you would admit that nobody's quite like you. And so that creates a problem for us. Why? Because it means at times that you are someone who's very hard to love. And <laughs> don't, don't say that too loud. People might <laughs> but then it also means this, that I, if I'm honest with myself, I can be hard to love. Now, oh no. That, those, these are my friends. <clears throat> okay. We have to impress the new people, Gary. <clears throat> Over the next couple of weeks, what we're dedicating is this series to really talk about the realities of what it means to struggle, what it means to wrestle with love. Specifically, uh, what we want to do over the next few weeks is establish a way we can uh, maybe measure the actions of your life in a way that helps you understand where you are in regards to uh, maybe the struggle of loving others, while at the same time, hopefully giving us all, and even for me, giving me a new perspective, a new way of looking and not only what it means to love others, but specifically, 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 why we are to love others. Now, over the next couple of weeks, here's our agenda. This is, it's, it's nothing really, uh, it's not rocket science. I, I don't have, it's not like I have a book to offer on how to, uh, to uh, you know, wrestle with love. But what we're simply going to do over the next couple of weeks is take a look at this passage. This is, every week we're going to look at the same passage in Galatians that... Uh, that Paul, who is the writer of this letter to a church, uh, really it's a group of churches in this area, uh, he describes, Paul describes a byproduct of the life defined by love, which he calls the fruit of the Spirit, and then he lists these byproducts of love. And so today, we're going to be looking at what uh, true Christ-like, Holy Spirit-given love produces, which we believe, according to the Scriptures, is Joy and peace. Now, if you're someone who doesn't believe everything you've heard about uh, Jesus and the Bible, listen, it's totally okay. We're about to talk some really, about some really crazy stuff. In fact, I, in fact, I would probably imagine that as we begin to talk about what love is, you actually really believe that this is what love is, but you would probably say to yourself, that really can't happen. And if you stick around us long enough, you'll know that in, inside of each and every one of our hearts too, it seems like a high and lofty goal, to actually love like the scripture tells us to love, to, as we learned last week, to love like Jesus loves. And as we'll talk about later, I'll just let you know, we can't actually do it on our own. Okay, so I just let you know that from now on, and then as we begin to talk about this, we'll talk a little bit more about why this can happen to us. And so in order for us to start this conversation, uh, let's just take a look at Galatians chapter 5. So uh, if you have a copy of your Bible, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 5. You can look on the screen if, if you can't pull up that quickly. But this is where we're going to be today. And uh, looking at Galatians 5, 16 to 23. 
And as we kind of typically do when we walk through a passage of Scripture, what I'll do is I'll read this, if you've not been with us before, just to let you know. Um, we'll read through it, I'll pray, and then I'll do the best I can to kind of pull some of these principles out of the text. And then hopefully along the way as we wrap up, I have uh, something I haven't done in a while, I think, in our missional communities. We talk about this in part, if not specifically. Uh, but what I want to do is something I haven't really talked about, and it's been about four years, but talking about how do we even... Uh, how do we even begin to grow? How do we begin to even move and mature towards this idea of growing in joy and peace? And, and how does that look? And so I'm going to try to get really, really practical today, if that's okay with you. And uh, what I'll probably do is I'll, I'll mess with some of you. And I'll just apologize ahead of time. Some of you are going to be like, oh, were you peeking into my life? Did you follow me and creep me on Facebook and whatever? So now you, <laughs> you made this message for me? Or, so that's not what it is. And so this is just the text, what it is. It is what it is. All right, you ready? Are right, everyone there? Good. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 23. Here's what it says. <clears throat> so I say to you, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. So far, everybody's with us. He's saying stuff that makes sense. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. Hmm, the dark side and the good side. You know, insert Star Wars favorite quote there. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. We're not going to talk about that in, in, in part. A lot of commentary. You could read on that. But we're going to continue on. When, when you follow the desire of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, Lustful pleasure, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, it keeps on going, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and just in case you forgot something he says, and other sins like these. Okay, he, just, he basically says that all, right? Let me tell you again, as I have said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God, but, okay, it's a big but, and I cannot lie, the, uh, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. What is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray this morning that as we attempt to begin to look at these byproducts of the fruit of your spirit, which is love, I would pray that you, uh, first and foremost, prepare our hearts to hear what we need to hear. Uh, take down any barriers that would cause us to have uh, maybe hard ears to, to refuse to listen to what is true. And guide my words, Lord, that they would be yours. And at the end of the day, uh, that all of us would get a clear picture of who you are, what you have done, and who we are in light of that. In your name I pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> as I like to do sometimes, uh, starting off this, this time together, I'd like to ask us a question. And this question is this, 
if following Jesus and living a life of love leads to joy and peace, then why does joy and peace seem elusive? Maybe you don't believe that it is, but I've had enough conversations with all of you to know that joy and peace isn't something all of you live with every single day, faithfully, consistently. In fact, these last few weeks have been the antithesis and the, of joy and peace as we've experienced snow in April. I can <laughs> I see you shoveling your driveway, right? So it's really, really hard. Why is it hard for us? Why is it hard for us to have joy and peace? Why is it that we have such a difficult time achieving it? Why is it that we have, to, we, we seem to have so many pressures and stresses and things that steal our joy and rob us of our peace? Why? I think one of the reasons is that we don't experience the fruit of joy and peace, which are the byproducts of the Holy Spirit empowering us to truly love because <clears throat> And this is where, you know, this is where I go to meddling. I think some of us have some false assumptions about what it means to have joy and peace. I don't know about you, but the United States is a nation that was founded largely on a social experiment in the pursuit of happiness. I didn't know if you knew that or not. I mean, look at our Declaration of Independence. What does it say? It says, we hold these truths to be what? Self-evident that all men are created equal. We love that. That they're endowed by the creator with certain, and then here's where, here's where we go, unalienable rights that among these are what? Life, liberty, and what? Pursuit of happiness. So life, guaranteed. Liberty, guaranteed. Happiness, we are welcome to pursue it. And so we're a nation that has for a few hundred years undertaken this experiment of the pursuit of happiness. We've grown up in this. We live it. We eat, breathe it. It's hard to escape from it and trying to discover what it is that is, that, that really we're, we're endlessly pursuing this rat race of trying to figure out what will help us find joy and peace. And I believe one of the reasons that we have a hard time finding joy and peace is because we don't understand that joy and peace is not a promise of freedom from pain. I, I think when we think in our culture of what it means to have joy and peace, it doesn't help us. I'm now I'm just speaking to us as Americans. If you've ever been overseas, <laughs> you know. If you've ever been to a third world country, their level of what is acceptable, joy and pain, what are the circumstances in which you could experience joy and peace it's just at a way different level. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? If you don't, it's because you're American. I don't blame you. That's just how it is. But we have to admit that. In fact, in John 14, uh, chapters, uh, John chapters 14 to 16, uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus is probably having what is one of the last conversations. You can take a look at it. It's really, really good there. Uh, what, that he'll have with his disciples before he returns to his father, before he is crucified and, he, and all that stuff that we talked about last week. And he's doing his best, as you read there, he's doing his best to try to kind of prepare them for what is coming and for the pressure that they will face in this life. He says a lot of hard things, and they're like, what, Jesus? Like, we don't get this. Like, 
what do you, I don't, we don't get your, I mean, all these miracles and all these great things, and we thought you were the Messiah coming, and you're going to just, and then he says this, he says this very interesting thing. In John chapter 16, verse 33, he says this, look, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace, period? No. What does he say? So we're going to have peace where? In me. That's a very, very important phrase. Here on earth, <laughs> depending on the church you grew up, no one ever talked about this sentence that Jesus actually taught. Here on earth, you will have many opportunities for prosperity, health, and wealth. Right? That's what he said. No. What does he say? You will have what? Trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. There's a whole brand of Christian thinking and theology that basically, basically says that joy can be found in the same place that culture is. That it tells us if we can get rich, get healthy, we can get happy. If we pursue health and wealth and freedom from trials and sorrow, this is what God wants from you. And I think it's important to note two things, two things really quick. I really don't have to do with this passage, but I think it's just good to talk about it as we talk about this. First, Jesus never said that. Jesus never said that, follow me, and I will give you health, and I will give you wealth. All right? When the message of Jesus is that God wants you to be victorious in health, wealth, and relationships, what we are basically saying is that as long as your circumstances are good, God is working in your life. Jesus said that here on earth you will what? Have trials and sorrows. You will experience pain and you will experience suffering. But that we shouldn't lose hope because he has overcome the world. The implication being that our hope and happiness and our joy is not tied up in the things of this world, but where? In him. Second thing to note is this, <clears throat> health and wealth and the absence of pain and suffering, if that is the standard for finding joy, <laughs> then listen, that standard actually excludes Jesus. Does that make sense? Think about it. If it's God's plan for you to prosper financially and always have more than enough, what does that say about Jesus who was born into a poor family, worked a common job for 30 years, spent three years in ministry, flat broke, uh, homeless, sometimes hungry, and had 12 roommates, okay? And trust me, I lived in a house with 20 other guys in college. There was nothing pain-free about that experience. There was nothing victorious. And as my constantly robbed and empty fridge, there was nothing, nothing absolutely suffering-free about that, okay? You could not keep an empty box of Papa John's <laughs> in a room without it being gone if you, if you took your eyes off of it. Not that there was Papa John's back that day. But anyways, you get the point. Now, how about Jesus' relationships? Did Jesus ever experience pain in his relationships? His family disowned him. His friends abandoned him. Judas, his own disciple, betrayed him. And this crowd that was earlier, just, just a few days earlier, was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the name who comes in the name of the Lord. Are going, what? Crucify him. Kill him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the, give us the, blah, you know, the, 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 give us the axe murderer. You know, the, the guy who was the filth beyond filth. And I don't mean to overstate my case, but it appears that 
Jesus had some relational strain in his life, didn't he? And then he died. He was about 33 years old. Jesus never said, follow me and experience no pain or pressure in life. And if you took an honest look at the scripture, you'll find that the promise of health, wealth, and victory are not really as existent as we would hope. Or at least not in the way we would think. The other reason we have a hard time finding joy and peace in our life and consequently in our relationship with others is because we misunderstand joy and peace as a result of our doing instead of a result of our belief in the gospel. It's very important for you to understand. We misunderstand joy and peace as a result of our doing. Uh, we, we, we think joy and peace is a result of what we do instead of a result of our belief in the gospel. Near the end of a letter to a church in Rome where Paul spends most of his time explaining what the gospel is and, and what it looks like to believe in the gospel, uh, he, he kind of closes it out here. Romans, it's Romans 15, 3. I'll just read this. It says this. I pray that God, the source of what? Hope. Will fill you completely with what? Joy. Who will completely fill you? He will. And what? Peace. Because why? You do good things. Because you what? Trust him. Then, then, that means something happened, right? Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is so good. <laughs> this is so good. As I was talking about this message with Leona uh, last night, she, she told me about how one author that she was reading about talked about this journey of growing in joy and peace. And she pulled this book out and she said, oh, you have to read this. This is so good. And I just want to share it with you. Uh, it, it comes from um, an author, uh, Ann Voskamp. She has this book called A Thousand Gifts. And I, I'll, I'll let you know, it's really like, like touchy-feely, but this part is really good. I mean, a lot of it is like, she, she goes, you have to forgive it. It's, all, it's written for, you know, for people who are like really touchy-feely. And, and so, but, but it's good stuff. But here's what, this stuff is good. It says this, I've got to get to this thing, what it means to trust, to gut believe in the good touch of God towards me because it's true. I can't fill with, I can't fill with joy until I learn how to trust. The full life, the one spilling joy and peace, happens only as I come to trust God the Father, who never burdens his children with shame or self-condemnation. Don't you want to serve a God like that? Doesn't that sound like good news? It does to me. Joy and peace is a result of a spirit-filled life and a spirit-filled life is one which has placed their faith in the gospel. Fruit that doesn't look like fruit of the God's spirit means that we have placed our faith in something other than the gospel. It's really important for you to understand. Fruit in our life, the outworking of what we see in our life that doesn't look like the fruit of the spirit is, is signs that we have placed our life in something, our faith in something other than the gospel. In other words, not having joy and peace is not a problem of what we are uh, are choosing to do or not to do. It's a problem with what we're believing in to be true about the gospel. If you don't understand what I'm uh, saying, uh, hopefully I, I want to 
put it for you in a visual. I've got this little thing. Uh, put that, the blank screens up there real quick. This will hopefully help. If you've been around Clarity for a while, you have heard me say at one time or another that the gospel could be simply understood through the lens of these basic questions. One, who is God? Anyone know what the second question is? What has he done? And then what's the third one? Can you read? Put it up there. Who am I, right? Specifically, who am I in light of what God has done? And then the fourth one is this. What does God want me to do in light of who I am? This is the fruit question. What kind of fruit does God want me to display in my life? And we talk about this a lot. We talk about this in our missional communities. We talk about this. And I haven't given this illustration in four years. Last time I did this was four years ago. So hopefully this will be helpful again. When we experience a lack of God's fruit or uh, uh, the fruit of God's spirit, we are wrestling with love. And when we're wrestling with love, you can always trace the problem back to a wrong belief in the gospel. Sometimes uh, when we are displaying fruit of our life that doesn't look like the fruit of the spirit, it's helpful to reverse these questions when we want to figure out what is the wrong belief that is playing itself out in our lives. For example, if joy and peace are good fruit, then the opposite of that fruit, I would think, would be something like worry, right? Or anxiousness, right? Now, if we start looking with the fruit of my life and ask, what am I doing regarding worry or anxiousness? We can recognize that what? When we have anxiousness, what are we doing? We are being what? Fearful. Did someone use the anxious? Did someone actually use the word anxious to this? Thank you, Captain Obvious. We're being fearful. We're having worry, right? No, we can have a little fun here, right? So, what, it's pretty obvious, if we're dealing, if, if the fruit of our life is anxious, anxiousness, if we, if we realize that we're dealing with lots of worry and anxiousness in our life, what, what is that, what are we doing? We are worrying, we are fear. And we don't just recognize that fruit, we want to get to the root. Because remember, that is not, that is not who we are. We are the sum total of our beliefs. And so we ask the question, we go to the next question, what, what does my doing say about who I believe, you know, what I'm believing about who I am. And I don't know about you, but if you're ever anxious or worried, what do you believe? What does that say about what do you believe about yourself? What does that say? What does that say? That you're alone. What? Not good enough? You're not, maybe you're not in control of your life, right? Right, because if you're worried... You feel like, ah, I don't have control of things, right? And why do you feel bad about that? Because you feel like what? You should be in control of things. Am I talking to just everyone? Nobody has anxiousness, right? No. But, but, does this resonate with anybody? Is it? No? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just want to make sure you get your money's worth today. If you're bored, we could say, I could say a prayer and, and we could go. All right? This is res- are you getting this? Okay, good. Now, what I'm really believing is that I should be sovereign, and I'm the sovereign ruler of my world, not Christ. And what does that tell me about what I believe God has done in my life or in this world? When my belief that I need to be in control displays itself in anxiousness, here's what happens. I believe what? That God has let me down. He's abandoned me. Maybe he stopped loving me. 
that he's lost control? He isn't powerful? You ever thought that? I have. I've been tempted many times to go, God, where are you? You ever thought that? And what does perspective on what God has done tell me about who God is? Well, what would be the logical conclusion of who God is based on what I just described? If I think God let me down, if I think he abandoned me, then what, who is God? He's what? You can talk to me. What? He's not all powerful. He's, he's absent, right? And, and if God stopped loving me, then what kind of person is he? What do you call a person who isn't loving? Thank you. Unloving, right? So God is unloving. Now some of you are like, where are you going with this? This is like heresy. We don't believe this stuff. That's the point. If you're a follower of Christ, we actually don't believe this. But we, we don't recognize this unbelief that's leading to the fruit that doesn't look like the fruit of the Spirit. And if we believe that God has lost control or power, we would never say this, but we would believe that God is what? He's impotent, that he's powerless. Now, at this time, this is where a lot of Christians say, if you're in this place of anxiousness, what you got to do is you got to just go, oh yeah. What should we do? Don't worry. Be happy. Right? Right? That's what Christians say. We get our theology from a guy who does all the music track with his voice. And that's our theology. Don't worry. Be happy. It's a shirt that has a smiley face on it. <laughs> it says, don't you remember that from the 80s? I yeah, connected with someone. Thank you very much. And we think that repentance is this. I used to be anxious, and then I stopped, and I just, be happy. Ha ha, happy. And we turn into Elmo. <laughs> and we're peaceful. But how long does it last, people? Really? And how genuine does that come across to the people around you? Listen, you can't produce fruits of fruit. You can't produce fruits of peace and joy. We can't do it. We can't do it. We cannot do it. We cannot produce fruit of peace and joy. That's the fruit of the Spirit. You can't do it. That's the message. <laughs> you can't do it. It's impossible. Are you desperate? Now you're in the right place. The only way you can get joy and peace at the point of anxiety is by turning away from the God you're worshiping and turning to the true God, which is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so now, the above description right there of someone is someone worshiping a false God. This is idolatry. Forming an image of God that is not God and then worshiping it, this is a lie. If this was me, I would have an idol in my life. And if I want to repent, I need to turn from who I believe is God in my life. In this storyline, who is God? Me. 
I am God. And I need to repent of that and turn to the truth about who God is through the gospel of Jesus. Now, here's where we can get some good audience participation. All of our behavior becomes out of our belief. All of it. All of what you do comes from what you believe. All of our belief is connected in who or what we worship. So who or whatever is our God is what you worship and what you worship will inform what you believe and what you believe will change your behavior. This is how it works. The righteous live by faith. This is what the the, the scriptures mean when it says the righteous will live by faith. And so righteousness comes out of faith, believing in a righteous God. Because the goal of displaying the fruits of the Spirit uh, is, you know, is the, because that's the goal, displaying the fruits of the Spirit. I don't just say, don't worry, be happy when I'm facing anxiousness. I have a root problem, not simply a fruit problem. I have an unbelief problem, not simply a doing problem. Does that make sense? So in order to get rid of that idol, the false God we're worshiping, we have to look to the gospel. And what is that? It's asking the same questions in the light of the storyline of Scripture. So who is God? What has he done? What is the character of God? What do you know about God? Who is he? God is what? Fill in the blank. What does the Scripture tell you? Loving. Right. But we just don't leave it there, right? Gospel-centered repentance is more than just saying God is love. Because there's a lot of people that go around saying, God is love. No, God is love. God is love. Gospel-centered repentance says, I know God is love because what? What? We just came out of it last week. How do we know that God is love? Right. He sent his son, Jesus. Because of Jesus and his cross and his death, we can know God. And apart from that, we cannot know the love of God. But we can know the love of God because Christ. Why? We know love because he first, what? Loved us. Make sense? And how do I know that God is loving? He died. Jesus died while I was a still sinner. Listen, listen. While I was a still sinner, while you were still a sinner, he died for us. And if Jesus died for me when I was an enemy, then clearly he loves me now that I'm his child. What else do we know about God? In response to this, is God, is God impotent? No. In light of the cross, he's what? He is powerful. And how do we know this? How do we know God is powerful? The resurrection. I don't know about you, but it's been quite a few years since I raised someone from the dead. Do you even lift, bro? Get it? Anyways, never mind. Uh-huh. But God is powerful because he raised Jesus from the dead. That's exciting, believers. Okay, never mind. I'll stop yelling. I'll have to get all Southern Baptist on you here. No. Is he absent? Is God absent? No. Is he not in control? No. Who is he? He's a God who is what? In control. Now listen. The cross of Jesus is about as worse it can be. Jesus, God made flesh, is hanging on a tree, dying for sinners, and everyone rejects him. And now he's dead, and then he gets put in a tomb. If there was ever a time that it looks like God is out of control and he's impotent, that is the point. But we know God's plan, right? 
in all of this, God was still in control. He was never out of control. Even when Jesus is dead in a tomb for three days, God did it so that sin, Satan, and death would be put to death and that death would die and sin would be condemned, that Satan would be conquered and overcome. God was not out of control at all, never was, never will be. That's the God we serve. And so if God is not out of control, when Jesus was in a tomb, listen, he certainly is not out of control in your circumstance right now that you just feel is completely out of control. When your kids are turning from the life that you raised them in, God is still in control. When there's uncertainty about your job and your future, God is still in control. And he's definitely in control. When life just seems at its worst, he is in control. God is in control. Do you hear me? God is present. He's not absent. He's powerful in our situation. He's loving us. God sent his spirit into our lives. And if you are a follower of Christ, listen, he's here with us right now. We don't have to do some special thing. He's here. He's living in us. He's among us. And we wouldn't even know about the truths of God if it weren't for God and his spirit revealing it to us. God is with us right now. And so this move from about the lie about who God is to the truth about who God is, is called repentance. It's what we call repentance. It's when you stop worshiping the false God and turn to the true God as revealed in Jesus Christ. It is repentance and faith because you turn to God as revealed in Christ and put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the next question, this who are you? So if we know who God is and what he has done, the next question is, then who are we in light of who Christ and what Christ has done and what God is and what he's done? When you ask this question, it has the power to change the way you see who you are. Listen, instead of seeing yourself as someone who is not loved, you now see yourself as someone who is loved greatly. And as we like to say, the gospel is this, that in Christ there is nothing you could do to make God love you more, nothing you have done that makes God love you less. Do you believe that? When you realize that God is powerful, you understand that God has made us more than conquerors. Romans 8, 31 to 38 talks about this, and now we are made more than conquerors in Christ. And when you realize that God is with you, you understand that you are not alone. This is why in the scriptures we find God saying over and over and over again, never will I leave you or forsake you. Never will I leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. Do you believe that? So what happens when I preach the gospel to myself, when I work through this? I Turn from worshiping an unloving and distant and impotent God and embrace what the gospel tells me is true about God as revealed in Jesus. That God is loving, that he's powerful, and God is near, who is dwelling in me. We turn, and that turn is repentance. 
that turn is repentance. And then when I set my faith in Christ and reveal the truth of my life with the help of the Holy Spirit living in me, something amazing happens. My life changes. Instead of anxiousness, now God begins to allow the fruit of his spirit, the fruit of love that displays itself in true joy and true peace, he allows it to begin to flow through my life. Does that make sense? For some people, I think that's helpful just to see. And so as we begin to walk through these fruits of the Spirit, this is the same thing we're going to kind of walk through. I'm not going to do this every week, but I wanted to start this time together because sometimes we can look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, oh, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. I got to be love. I got to be joy. I got to be, you know, you got to be strong. You got to be this. You got to be together. Right? No, that's not what it is. The fruit of the Spirit is not about your being. It's about your belief. We want to reorient our belief. Make sense? So do you want joy? Do you want peace? You find it by believing in the gospel. Don't know what it is? Ask someone that you know. Allow them to walk you through it. Embrace it. Or come back next week as we, can to, as we can continue to be reminded about how the gospel informs a life that lives by his spirit. Let me pray.